Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Leah Barrett, lives with cancer with an uncertain prognosis. In this second conversation, we talk about the difficult emotions associated with such a diagnosis and how she has learned to cope with them. As she says, Whatever I'm feeling, especially the really hard stuff, the grieving, the sense of the injustice of it all, I'm attached to living. As much as I can talk easily about death and dying and and have an acceptance of it, it doesn't mean I don't want to live. It was a great pleasure to spend time with Leah Barrett. Leah, you're very welcome to the show. As I was saying before we started formally, I really wanted you to come back and explore some more with us. In our last conversation, you talked about how you were coming terms, if that's possible, with your cancer diagnosis. You talked about cancer as a great teacher, and you said you don't make plans. Is that still true? Yeah. First of all, it's so good to be with you again. So good to speak with you, and I'm excited to be here. So thank you. I don't really make plans. I mean, I will allow myself the luxury of planning maybe towards the end of the week. But as far as something beyond a month from now, I I don't. Or if I do, it's a very intentional and calculated exercise I go through. Like I say things to myself, like do not get attached to this plan. Do not... In other words, oftentimes human beings make plans because it gives us something to look forward to, right? And I will... The calculus I do in my head is I'll make the plan but I tell myself to not use it as something to look forward to. Don't become attached to it. Don't indulge in what planning actually normally does for human beings. <laughs> so it's a very kind of transactional experience in my head, not an emotional. And I have a lot of grief around that. Like I'm very aware of what I'm choosing to miss out on by not being emotionally attached and having that look forward to experience that most of us have when we make plans. I don't do it that way anymore. And I I don't know, sometimes I think that might not be worth it. But right now it feels like I would be too hurt if I got attached to the plan and found out that I had to let go of it. I want to explore that a little bit more with you. But just for our listeners, can you tell us where you are in your journey at the moment? Yeah, thank you. I am at this point considered no evidence of active disease which I've been in these places before over the course of eight years. feels a little different this time as we chatted about before because there really is, from a healthcare perspective, or at least my team, a big unknown about how long I'll get to experience that. Well, there's a huge unknown if I'd ever get here to begin with because I've been kind of in and out of remission for so long and so heavily priorly treated. And so it's a month-by-month check in with practitioners, get blood work, you know, be aware of my body and and be in tune with any potential symptoms. And I've always found this place in between treatment harder psychologically. I think a lot of people who are facing with long-term chronic illness, specifically cancer, could probably talk about that. <laughs> uh, there's something about being in active treatment that feels like you're doing something. So anyway, I finished IV chemotherapy at the end of June of 2021. And now you and I are speaking today. It's like almost the end of January 2022. And it's a month to month experience. 
In other words, I could go in next month, get tumor markers drawn, and they could be high. And that, that changes, right? That changes conversations, that changes my perception of what's going on for me and in, in my life and my future. Hence, I don't really like to make plans. You said this in our last conversation that you don't like to make plans. And here we are at the start of a new year and all of us have made Mm -hmm. new year's resolutions as if things will never change. And yet the world itself is facing a very uncertain future and that in in the pandemic, we, we have no idea where this is going to go. And you talked about your illness being the great teacher. When you reflect on that and you look at the world around us, do you see anything that we could potentially learn from your journey? Yeah, I I don't know if I talked about this last time or not, but I do feel like there are some interesting parallels with my experience going through cancer and facing death and not sure how much longer I have in this uncertainty and the pandemic and watching us human beings wrestle with letting go of plans facing uncertainty, being disappointed, grieving, um, whether it's, you know, actual knowing people who have died from COVID or just our lives being upended. There's a weird kindred spirit camaraderie experience I'm having a bit that's helping me not feel so alone in my existential crisis. And I don't know, you know, if I have wisdom to share, except that you know, I'd be curious how other people are experiencing the pandemic if they have come to what I'm about to tell you. It, it's, we, as you said, we live as if we have all these tomorrows ahead of us. We make these plans. We, we save money for retirements. We always talk about, well, next year I'll get that better job or find that relationship that's meaningful. Or next year I'll learn to play the viola. Or I, I listen to this all of the time. And this is what I feel like planning is a privilege. I feel like planning is a privilege, but we take that for granted. And I, I, and this is cliche, but th- this notion that, you know, all we really have is this moment. And the beauty of this moment is that it can be so fulfilling if we allow it to be and we sit with it. But we quickly are off to the next thing in our heads or our hearts. And, and we, we are perpetually missing out on the moment. I mean, if, if humans are good at anything, it's, it's not being in the now, any place but here. <laughs> and one of the things that cancer and cancer treatment has forced me to do is to sit, to sit still and to be in the now. And it is wonderfully, beautifully powerful. And it's something I would highly recommend. And I feel like some of us through this, through this pandemic have begun to appreciate that, maybe, or we're growing more and more exhausted, frustrated, angry, sad, and anxious because we can't wait until this is over so we can get on to that next thing. And I would say to that experience, that's only creating more suffering, <laughs> right? To to wish for this to be over so we can move on to the next thing. It's a human natural response, of course. But what can living in the now really show us if we're willing to try to do that? I think in the last conversation, you talked about the joy of tasting a strawberry mm-hmm. and knowing that your bowels were working. I think you <laughs> said there was great joy. Basic things. The basic right. things. Great joy yeah. in all of that. That's something that we can all 
experience today and 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 we do and and we know that in this moment there isn't a problem we don't know what there is going to be in the next moment and like you we who are living with the pandemic don't know what the prognosis is because mm-hmm. it's an unknown it's a, it's uncertain yeah how do you do this how do you f- deal with that emotion that says well you need to plan this and this and this mm-hmm. Oh, but there's a bowl of strawberries sitting in front of you. How about you just focus on that? How do you get to that point? Mm-hmm. A lot of it, as I just alluded to, was mostly because I was thrown into the deep end of the pool and I had to figure out how to swim in that uncertainty. So I'm not going to profess that I have become a master through discipline and practice. <laughs> I think it's been more by having to learn how to live in the moment. But I, I will say this, since I'm also a you know, mental health counselor and psychotherapist, and, and the, this concept of mindfulness and living in the now is pretty prevalent in my world and sort of out there as well, that I believe that there's something about, we call it grounding techniques in mental health, to, to, to start with noticing your feet on the ground or your body in the space where it is and, and noticing your breathing and noticing the breath and notice and just beginning there beginning in the body and being so present with that i think that's a beautiful place to start because from there when we're truly doing that is when we then can scan the room through our eyeballs right and use that sensory experience of vision or start to listen through the sensory experience of auditory and then from there we can you know, begin to notice whether it's some more tactile experience or anything we might be smelling. And all of that can so quickly, quickly bring us in the now. And is, is as simple as it sounds, it can be a stark contrast if you don't do it very often, right? To just do that very simple exercise of grounding. And like I said, I feel like I would talk about that intellectually pre-cancer because it's my shtick as a mental health professional to talk about that. Um, and I knew I knew what the peer-reviewed studies showed about these techniques and I know they're powerful, but I honestly, to be very transparent, probably really never did it the way that being sick and having to sit still taught me how to do it. I had to be kind of convinced. There are times when you must feel like the rest of us, frustrated, angry, just overwhelmed by the negative emotions that sometimes well up inside of us because of mm-hmm. the situation that you're in. And that moment, the strawberries get kicked off into, the, into touch. You really don't want to think about it. But somehow acknowledging that despair almost seems to bring us back around because we accept that to feel that is also human. and that negative energy somehow has to be allowed to exist and dissipate in its own time. Is that how it's been for you? Yeah, I love, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, this is not, this is not without a full emotional experience of all, all those feelings. That's not honest, right? I mean, the honesty is part of being in the now is if you're angry noticing that and letting that be true, if you're, if you're in despair noticing that and letting that experience happen. It's not about expecting a 
you know, blissed out, peaceful in the now moment. I mean, if that happens, that happens and that's lovely. But sometimes and mostly why humans don't like to be in the now is because it's painful. It's really painful. And yes, the other thing about being so sick and going through treatment that the sort of the conundrum or oxymoron of asking yourself to sit in the now is like, why? (laughs) It's really awful. (laughs) Like, I don't want, I don't want to be in this right now, any place but here. So I have learned that to run from it only kind of just increases the intensity of the experience and to learn to sit and know that I will tolerate and endure and get to the other side of that emotional experience has been not only reassuring, but healing. And it also, when I give myself permission to say, doesn't that make sense? Of course, whatever I'm feeling, especially the really hard stuff, the grieving, the, the, the sense of the injustice of it all, I'm attached to living. I, as much as I can talk easily about death and dying and, and have an acceptance of it, it doesn't mean I don't want to live doesn't mean I don't want more. I absolutely do. And so that's the balancing act I, I am you know, attempting to walk is, well, how do I let those feelings have place to be true while I'm, you know, eyes wide open about what's going on for me? I think it's the Stoics that say, isn't it, this too will pass. But at the moment that you're experiencing it, it doesn't feel like it's going to pass because you get this overwhelming, I mean, physiologically, it's easy to understand. You get the adrenaline pouring out, your pulse is racing, your breath is speeded up, your pupils are dilated, and your brain thinks there's a tiger chasing you in the forest. I mean, that's, our DNA is essentially designed in that way to protect us. Yeah. And that protection is the thing that's very negative when there isn't a tiger chasing us. It's the shadow of something that has terrified us. Yeah. At an intellectual level, it's very easy to say, well, you just say to yourself, this too shall pass. I've tried it. It doesn't work. (laughs) I know. I love how honest you're being. We're like, yeah, on paper, it's great. Yeah. And we can prove it. But when we're, I know I say this to my clients all the time when we're talking about like panic attacks or something, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be really honest with you. This tip and technique that we're talking about right now, when you're actually in the throes of the panic attack, not going to happen. It's that's what we're talking about ways in which you, you know, take care of yourself after you get through the arousal curve of it all. And maybe even maybe notice if it's coming on before it actually hijacks you. But when you're in it, you did, you spoke beautifully about it. It's our brain and bodies are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. We're bypassing frontal lobes, no frontal lobes. (laughs) It's reptile brain all the way, right? When you've got a diagnosis such as you have, do those moments get less frequent as you have to deal with them or more frequent or what, what is it really like? It's a great question. Um, I, here's what I thought was going to happen. I thought, well, I'm going to get better at this the longer I live through it. So every time I'm like approaching getting that blood work back or the scan results or sitting down with the oncologist, it's not going to throw me as much, right? Because I've got wisdom now. I have experience. The thing is what I've noticed is that's not true, at least for me. I think that it's the reptile brain that just overwhelms frontal lobes. But what I do know is now I expect that I will be hijacked by this inherent DNA built-in anxiety reaction because thinking you're going to die or perceiving that that's the threat coming at you is a big one. And my body and head and heart are all doing what they're supposed to do, but I at least don't feel surprised by it. And so that 
has been a big improvement in my experience is I anticipate it. I am gentle with myself about when I see it coming on. I try to take care of myself around it. I used to think, even up until a couple of years ago, that I shouldn't be this upset. I shouldn't have this anxiety. I should have my act together by now because I've been doing this for so long. And, and then I realized I'm only setting myself up to disappoint myself or feel like I'm not coping well. Instead, I'm like, no, this is okay. This is okay that you're anxious. Of course you are. Even if you're ready for you know, the inevitable you know, conversation around, we have no more we can offer you, intellectually ready for that. At some level, you may never truly in your DNA be ready for that. And that, doesn't, that is not some sort of evaluation of your preparedness and, and your acceptance of the inevitable. That's just two systems of the body and the mind bumping up against each other. This inherent will to live, which I've decided is, again, wired in us, and the intellectual ability of human beings to notice our thoughts and feelings and to do all that processing. We've got this core visceral aliveness, and we have our ability to reflect. And the two, especially when you're getting close to death, or I shouldn't say I'm close, but you know, the prognosis I have, they will clash. They're just going to clash. And that is, again, not some sort of testament to how poorly I'm doing in in my mental health and my my work around this at all. And that's something I've learned. I used to evaluate myself around that. Like, you're clearly not doing this well. If you still get really upset, if you still get very anxious, if you still get, you know... um, all that trauma and fear reaction as a result of tumor markers or scans. It's like, I think I've decided that's just being human. Yeah, the wonderful Kimberly Warner, who has worked with us on a number of projects, says that she has this program called Unfixed. And essentially, it's a, she says it's okay to be broken because broken is, all, is what we are. Yeah. Going to another level, the entire world and large parts of it, and we're not just talking about individuals, are experiencing at some level what you're talking about at an individual level. The consequences are could be even worse when an entire population goes into full panic mode uh-huh. because the potential damage that they could do to their colleagues, their friends, their communities might be even worse. Yeah. What do you think when you reflect on that? Yeah, I've th- I've actually I, I think about that more and more because we're what are we like beyond two years into the pandemic now some some kind of phenomenal timeline that none of us I thought we'd be here and so I am thinking about that cumulative effect and I'm watching with some concern and sadness about this collective fatigue emotional fatigue that's going on that is really uh, wearing on human's ability to cope. And again, with all the compassion in the world, I'm speaking to this because I think it's a natural response to have all of our higher level intellectual (laughs) coping tools at this point be used and thrown out and burnt out. and, And we're just, we're at this sort of, again, core reaction to our environment and it feels incredibly threatening. And so we are, I think, in this collective edge of fight, flight, or freeze 
And some of us have already been there depending on, again, our circumstances and what we've been exposed to. So my hope, which might sound like fairy tale magic wand, (laughs) is that we can actually continue to lead with kindness and gentleness and assume good intent, compassion and grace for each other. At this point, I'm sort of feeling like that's the only thing that's going to get us through. Because if we look at this bad behavior and we judge it and we see each other as enemies and it just accumulates as we've been watching. And so I think the more we can look at someone's meltdown, anger, sadness, grief, frustration, whatever emotion that feels too intense for us to take on or take in, maybe it reminds us of ourselves and we can provide grace and we can give compassion for that. That's my wish. I, I feel like that's going to help us get to the other side of this. I think asking for more resilience and grit and, okay, great. That feels at this point uh, like a big ask. I feel like it's more realistic to say we're all pretty exhausted and we're all pretty scared. And scare, being afraid looks different. Being afraid might look like anger, right? Or irritability or anxiety. It doesn't necessarily look like a vulnerable fear. So, but we, we don't like anger as human beings. We, that's a threat. So it just, it feeds on itself. So I try to remember that someone's experience, especially if it comes across as an anger, aggressive experience, underneath it is exhaustion, most likely fear, and that kind of collective fight, flight, or freeze response. It's a big question, isn't it? It's a question of does wisdom scale? Because more than ever, we need to remain calm in the face of this challenge because Mm -hmm. we have no idea where it's going to take us. Mm -hmm. So in the last five months, six months, since we had our last conversation, have you got other insights either about yourself or about this illness? Yeah, thank you. I Yes, what I'm working on lately, (laughs) in my wisdom, I like to call, is I'm noticing how much I lead with my ego. And I say that because one of the other assumptions I had about being sick for this long and having my, basically, my world get get upended so many times. You know, like literally my, my world stops. I have to shut my practice down. I'm not sure if I'm coming back. I'm not capable of doing much. My identity has been stripped from me. You would think, I thought, that I'd have ego checks along the way. Like every time that happened, I'd be ripped down to my naked core self. That ego was like, man, we don't have, we have no role here anymore. <laughs> See ya. And I, what's been the hardest things this time around is my ego is very much alive and talks to me a lot. And, and it's hard because it's telling me things like, you don't have much time left. You better, you better leave that legacy. You better make your mark. You better do big things with your life. And I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm really tired. And that clash between ego talking to me about the urgency of doing something that matters and the other part of me that says, I don't have it in me and that's got to be okay is what I'm wrestling with right now. And that fight, that internal fight is exhausting. So not only am I tired, like I'm talking to ego saying, I don't really want to do all that stuff (laughs) you're asking me to do. So you're remembered in this world. 
just having that kind of dialogue in my head can be exhausting. So that's been that's been interesting. I, I I'm a bit surprised, and I'm being just really honest with you because I, I wish that I kind of thought I didn't have this kind of like we all have ego, by the way. But I'm talking about the type of ego that is making myself think I'm pretty important in the world. And I think death is like the fear of death is doing some of that. And I'm a little surprised and a little humbled and kind of embarrassed <laughs> that that's gone on for me. And I'm I'm just going to try to be gentle and curious with myself about that and just see where that takes me. So. Just another part of your being human, Leah, it sounds uh-huh. like. Yeah, yeah. Right somewhere. I'm sure you've, you've heard this phrase and somebody was talking about how they see themselves and they said, God, could I please see myself as my dog sees me? <laughs> yeah, then I'm good. I'd be fine, right? Like I'm already good enough in my dog's eyes. Better than good enough, actually. Maybe that's what I'll leave um, in my eulogy is something like that. <laughs> Yeah, and the other saying was, God, could my life be as good as that guy's Instagram? (laughs) That's the slippery slope, for sure. Yeah, I have to be very careful about that. I think there is some of that going on a little bit, is watching all the beautiful people and their beautiful lives and and feeling a little sucked in by that, which which I know, again, intellectually is a risk. So, yeah. But I think it's more for me that just, just I'm so aware that, you know, I don't have that much time left. And if I was, this is the whole planning thing. If I was waiting to do something, waiting to experience something, waiting to, you know, feel accomplished in the world, I don't know. I not even, even if I wanted to, I don't, that I don't know if I'll have the time. And I'm, what I'm sharing with you right now is I don't know if I want to. And I, it just really brings up that kind of naked, vulnerable experience of, checking in to, to ask myself, do I believe I'm good enough? Do I believe that this is good enough? Do I believe that if I were to die tomorrow, it, that would be okay? And it's not a bucket list question. That's not what I'm talking about. It's just, it's more around this one shot I have to give back in the world and have I done it all? And I, I feel like that's mostly ego. I think that I feel like that's ego talking. The temptation when somebody says what you've just said is to say, of course you're good enough. Of course you're wonderful and all the rest of it. But somehow that feels like feeding the very thing that's causing them the pain. Yeah. It's okay not to be fabulous. It's okay not to make, to leave a legacy. It's okay not to do all of those things. I would argue that you are, but I'm not going to say that to you because if I said that to you, I'd be feeding the very monster that you're trying to deal with. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's exactly right. It's circular thinking, right? We talked about this last time, but this does also, I'm thinking about it now because I'm reflecting on our first conversation. This is what helps try to ground me out of that ego dialogue. And that is, in my opinion, one life does not matter than any other life. And so the child that died at age three versus me who might die at age 55 or the person who lived till they were 93. I mean, does the person who lived until they were 93 have a greater stake on their claim and how they impressed upon the world. You would argue they had more time, but that's it. And the three-year-old who died in the car accident or of leukemia or some, you know, it just what they experienced in that short life made a huge impression in the people that they intersected with. And uh, that grounds me. You know, I it's not it's not about feeling like it's only what I do and who I impress. And I don't, I don't mean impress, but I mean like the impressions I make on people, the, the hits, the, the, the number of interactions I have. It's not about that at all. It's about the, 
it's just like inherently knowing that my very existence mattered and matters, whether it's, you know, I've got 24 months on this planet or, you know, 96 years. That helps me get out of ego, telling me that I need to do more to make sure that I've left some impression. Somehow ego is also built into our DNA because ego is what's driven so much of what we now call progress in life and in innovation and all these things that we currently enjoy. But the ugly side of that is that it's also the cause of our suffering, isn't it? Because it makes us, it drives us to do things when we're exhausted. And frankly, that doesn't help anybody. Right. Yes, that's, um, if there's a shadow side of being human, if we're talking about ego that way, and again, look at what our incredibly capable minds can do through innovation and progress. I mean, I think we're talking the same language. It's a slippery slope. right? We're driven to improve and to innovate and to make things better. There are so many unintended consequences of, if we're talking ego is driving that, that we end up constantly reacting to the problems we create as a result of this drive that just kind of in a way blinds us to what potential unintended consequences of that whole hamster wheel, so to speak, is about. And And again, if we're really kind of bringing this in, this is why I look to nature to be like this beautiful ecosystem that knows how to do that. (laughs) It's not driven by ego to, it just adapts. I mean, what it's doing is it's constantly innovating through adapting and we're we're interfering with that. But yes, and that, that also grounds me too. It's like, if I could just come back to the beauty of my inherent self as a being in this natural world, then... As I said to you earlier, and I think it was our first conversation, like I'm no different than watching the hawk in my backyard, you know, prey on the blue jay. It's humbling. It's grounding. It helps me unhook from ego to think that I'm just a part of an ecosystem and I, I don't have to prove anything. No, I don't have to be more than I am. Yeah, intellectually, you're saying all the right things, mm-hmm. but acknowledging that you really do want to do all of those things is also important. And living with that awful, uncomfortable energy until it dissipates is also okay. You can beat yourself up. Don't do it too hard, but you can beat yourself up. That's fine. (laughs) It's part of the fact that we can think about our thoughts and notice our thoughts and notice our feelings. And we have the secondary tertiary, you know, dialogue constantly. And it can be our Achilles heel, right? Or we could just try to be curious and notice that that's part of what a human mind does and maybe not take ourselves so seriously. Leah, yet another wonderful half hour in your company. It's been a joy and I'd love to keep the conversation going. I'm sure we will. Thank you. That would be one of my favorite things ever if you were to invite me back on. It was great to talk with you today. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design.com.